and it was kind of this interesting experience of like you're looking at the menu of scenarios and just like over the course of two weeks like watching yourself zero in <laughs> the worst case scenario and then watching the menu like open up to things that are worse than the worst case scenario this is food at a radio is all dressed up and has no place to go Everybody in the food industry is surviving the coronavirus crisis in their own way. In this episode, which veers dangerously close to actual journalism for what's meant to be a chatty podcast, I talk to two people I've known for some years in the business. Matt Sussman, owner of one of Chicago's great neighborhood spots, Table Donkey and Stick, and Peter Klein, who owns Seedling Fruit, a supplier to many restaurants and vendor at local farmer's markets. But first, please subscribe to Food Eater Radio at the podcast app of your choice, and leave us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Now, we'll start by talking with Matt Sussman, who has turned a wine bar and restaurant into a pizza spot, and who tells us from the inside what the process of getting government aid for your payroll has been like. Well, let's go back way back to the beginning. You're not a restaurant guy. Uh, how'd you become a restaurant guy, and what were you doing before? When I first started getting involved in restaurants. I was working at a nonprofit in Chicago that was focused on various urban sustainability issues. And I was right out of college and I was doing some kind of staging and gigging here and there in a couple restaurants at the time. And over the course of a couple of years, I got kind of more and more interested. And then at that point I was actually doing similar kind of policy related work, but for a consulting firm that is based in Washington, DC. So I was working remotely and kind of simultaneously increasing the amount of time I was spending uh, kind of on the side working in restaurants. And then in 2012, one of those restaurants that I had a relationship with, uh, which was Bonsoiré, was closing and I pretty much took a leap of faith with <laughs> very very little experience at that time and knowing almost nothing about what I was getting into. So that's kind of the origin story. And for a while, that looked like a good move. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have no regrets, <laughs> but uh, that was over eight, or that was almost eight years ago now, seven yeah. and a half years ago. And I did continue, I did, I continued working for the consulting firm for, I think, two years. Okay. After opening the restaurant, this coronavirus thing starts to happen. I'm curious, what? Tell me if you can remember how it sort of impinged on your worldview and became more and more prominent uh, along the way. Well, I'd say I was somewhat obsessively tracking what was going on starting in maybe early February. Uh, at that point, it seemed like more of an issue globally and kind of a question mark about what the impact would be in other countries or specific countries outside of East Asia. By the end of February, it started becoming clear that it was definitely going to be an issue in the United States, <laughs> but it was still a little unclear whether it would be anything like it is. Uh, but I would say, yeah, over the first course of the, course of the first two weeks of March, that became something that 
I was thinking about a lot and starting to understand that the worst case scenario that, you know, I was thinking about on March 1st was becoming more and more likely to be the scenario we were facing. So, you know, over the course of those two weeks, starting to, you know, talk to my teams and think about what we were going to do. And at that point, it seemed more like, uh, I mean, that worst, obviously there's the, the impact of the virus, the public health impacts, which, you know, I'm not in a position to do a whole lot about. Um, so, you know, thinking through just what the wider economic impacts would be, even if we hadn't gotten to, gotten to this point, it was pretty clear there was going to be a devastating impact on restaurants. We all run on pretty tight margins and any kind of shock to the business model is something that's going to be hard to adjust to. So I'd say the first two weeks of March were when I was really starting to dig in and think about what was going to happen. And it was kind of this interesting experience of like, you're looking at the menu of scenarios and just like over the course of two weeks, like watching yourself zero in <laughs> the worst case scenario and then watching the menu, like open up to things that are worse than the worst case scenario, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Just it seemed to me, I mean, the idea that all the restaurants would close was so fantastic. It's like all the restaurants are going to move to the moon. And, yeah. you know, it, it really, to me, it seemed like it happened really rapidly. I suppose you were contemplating that well before people like me were. Yeah. I mean, it all moved pretty quickly, though. I mean, I remember talking to my team about what was going on, like, you know, the week of. March 9th was maybe a Monday and March 16th was the last day. I think that right. I think was a Monday, but the last day the restaurants were open. We actually were closed. We were closed at that point. I think the day before that we were open for dine in and then shut it down before it got announced. I think they announced it on sun that Sunday. Right. But yeah, I mean, I was already talking to my team about the possibility, like, you know, restaurants and bars just might not be open. I mean, it's happening around the world. I think at that point, California maybe did it a couple of days earlier. So it was like, but I wasn't weeks ahead of that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, and we were hearing, especially about Italy, I think you heard so much stuff about people not even being allowed to leave their house to go shop or anything. Um, mm -hmm. But it still seemed, you know, to me, it felt like, well, it could be like a, a really bad snow when nobody goes out. But the idea that we'd really shut everything down, it's just not even in our life experience, you know? Yeah, right. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's an adjustment to kind of see things that you never imagined would happen. And right. Adjust to that. How did you judge, should I lay people off? Should we, you know, keep them on staff? What's better for them in terms of applying for unemployment? All that kind of stuff. What was your thought process there? Obviously, when I was making those decisions, it wasn't known what the stimulus would look like, but it was already clear that they would have to take some action because, you know, whole industries were being shut down overnight. Right. That I mean, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, like how many people work in the service sector in restaurants, bars, movie theaters, or, you know, what have you, many millions, tens of millions of people. So I figured there'd be something coming along. My intention was to figure out the business model that would support as much of the staff as possible. And we were pretty lucky to get on something that uh, allowed us to, we actually didn't lay off anybody. So okay. the front of house team, I advised all of them 
to apply for unemployment and that they were furloughed. Um, but many of them work full time and have health benefits. So they kept the benefits and they were basically scheduled like two shifts a week. And you know, I was looking into how the unemployment, like putting aside the federal stimulus, which came in later, just looking into how the Illinois unemployment works. And if you qualify for $400 of weekly benefit, which is, you know, give or take what most of my team was qualifying for, you actually can earn up to that amount and still qualify. So you can make $395 and still get unemployment benefits, but they reduce the amount of the benefit. Basically every dollar you earn over one half of your qualify your benefit level is subtracted. So if you earn $200, you get the full $400 benefit. If you earn $300, they subtract 100. So I was looking at that and just kind of figure out, you know, these people who I've employed for, in some cases, you know, five years or more in a couple of cases, you know, if they're making $600 a week for a few weeks and we figure out what's going on, they'll, they'll be okay. And they still have their health benefits. And presumably something's coming down the pipeline to help people. So that was kind of the calculus. And then, you know, the business model we moved to with the pizza proved to be sustainable and it doesn't support the level of staffing that we were at before, but it supports, I don't know, more than half of what we were at. So that's something. And then, you know, as the weeks went by, we learned more about how the stimulus was going to work and on the CPP thing, which is a little bit complicated uh, and basically took a week and a half of my life from me. Yeah. Uh, well, let's work through both of those things. I think the pizza is really interesting because pretty much out of the gate, you had kind of one of the the hit foods of the coronavirus era. It seems so trivial to talk about it in those sort of uh, yeah. food media terms. But nevertheless, I mean, that that is what happened. People were hot for this pizza, and it sounds like you've sold a decent amount of it. So tell me how that came about. Uh, so like I said, in those couple of weeks at the beginning of March, thinking about you know what things were going to look like over the coming months, takeout and delivery, you know, even if restaurants weren't entirely shut down, it was clear there was going to be a huge impact to people dining at restaurants. So that seemed like the key. And our menu is not really designed, you know, our, historically our menu is not really designed for takeout and delivery. We've never done delivery at all. And we've never been on a takeout platform. We do like, there are people who live in the neighborhood who pick up a burger now and then, but it's never been something we focus on. And it seemed clear that if we just tried to like put our regular menu or even made, made some small adjustments to the regular menu and put that out there for takeout and delivery, it seemed to me like best case scenario, we could have a couple people working and making some food, you know, and maybe our revenue would be like 20, 25% of normal, you know, and I think that, w- that would be optimistic. So it seemed like we had to make some kind of pivot if we were going to be anywhere near I mean, I won't even say profitable, but just sustainable as a business. And pizza is something that is near and dear to me. And it's something I've thought a lot about just, you know, before any of this happened. Because you're quite a baker. Yeah, I mean, I like bread, but I I independently also just like pizza a lot. I grew up eating a lot of pizza. I grew up in a place that wasn't very dense, but even so, there were multiple pizza places I could walk to from the house I grew up in, you know, so... Something that was important to me, one of my, you know, seminal eating experiences, like when you're 12 <laughs> years old and there aren't 
too many things you can do with your friends. Uh, you know, you can walk to the pizza shop and get a slice and, you know, that's something I remember fondly, but a, I like pizza and was already kind of interested in doing something with pizza at some point. And B, we had a, a guy named Corey Jordan who comes with a lot of baking experience. He worked at the, the little goat bakery for, I actually don't know how long for, I think several years. Um, and he was doing these pan pizzas for family meal, maybe every two weeks or so over the last five months. So we'd tried his pizza a number of times and played around with it and stuff. So we kind of had a little bit of R and D already done. Uh, and we had not necessarily an ideal setup, but we had an oven and a mixer and, you know, kind of the basic things required to execute. So, you know, I talked to the guys and you know, what, what are we going to do? And they're like, well, we could do pizza. And it's like, I mean, I think that's a great idea. Actually, I don't think I'm the one who mentioned it first. This is like a week and a half or a week before we started. But it was something that was kind of, you know, what could we do? And that immediately was like, okay, well, if you guys are into it, let's do it. And so I think the first day we did it was the Sunday, which was our last night allowing people into the restaurant. And we did like a small number. And then we did piloted it the following couple of days. And then by the end of that week, we kind of had launched you know, more or less of the scale we're at. So the pizza is kind of a, uh, I mean, it's sort of like a Sicilian or grandma pizza, square pizza. The The crust is pretty soft. Where'd that come from? So, I mean, I like crisping it up personally. So I think, you know, it's a matter of preference. I'm a crispy guy. So I, yeah. if I get, if I take it home, I put it in a cast iron pan <laughs> and get okay. it crisped up is my, is, is usually my plan. Uh, for eating that kind of pizza. And so I actually, one of my favorite slices in the city, and this is sadly a city that doesn't have any kind of slice culture. Right. Uh, But I'd say my favorite slice in the city, I'm not going to qualify it actually, is from Tomatoes. I always take that home and put it in a cast iron to eat it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've eaten it there, I guess, a few times and had them heated up, but that's a pizza that you give it five minutes in a cast iron pan and it's a lot better. Yeah. It's more Corey's recipe than mine, but it's a style that I personally am fond of. Uh, you know, I grew up eating New York slices for the most part, but you, you get a Sicilian slice here and there and some places do it well and some places don't do it well. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, it's a style I always liked, but it was never my go-to, but actually in Chicago, if I'm going to get a slice of pizza, that's that, that tomato slice is my slice. And you had to make it square. You were telling me because uh, that's what fit your oven. Yeah. Right. I mean, with the equipment that we have, and I guess at this point, you know, looking forward, maybe it makes sense to invest in different <laughs> equipment and kind of set up a kitchen for a completely different style of service. But at the time, I was like, okay, well, what do we have? What can we use? And we do have a pizza oven, but there's no way we would have been able to make a reasonable number of pizzas to sell if we were doing, you know, traditional round pizzas. All right. So then the matter of applying for the PPP because at the same time that I picked up my pizza, my square pizza, and we talked about that, you were deep in applying for that and did not seem to be a happy guy. So tell, tell me about that whole process. The program was announced and then there was some delay before anyone was actually taking application. I was kind of, you know, keeping a close eye on what was going on. The two banks that we work with at Table Docking Stick are Byline Bank, which was formerly North Community Bank, and that's been our deposit bank for 
before I was involved actually, because the business license got transferred. So that's a, that's a bank account that has been active for like over 10 years and also PNC bank, just another deposit account. You know, I'm reaching out to them and that Friday applications are starting to be accepted and both of those banks don't have any means of accepting applications. They haven't figured out their system yet. And then the beginning of that next week, PNC had an online portal and I tried to use it and I couldn't upload the documents that they required. It was like giving me the same error. Meanwhile, Byline Bank is kind of kicking the can down the road saying that their systems are ready. They're waiting for guidance from the FBA. And I think kind of in that day or two, I was someone mentioned that this bank, Radius Bank, which is one of probably several like more online banking institutions was taking applications. So I submitted a, an application with them, which was their portal worked. And meanwhile, still working on PNC, kind of having this issue escalated, talked to multiple bankers, um, spent many hours trying to upload these documents according to their instructions. In the middle of the week, also heard from Byline that they weren't accepting any applications from deposit customers, only loan customers. So Byline wasn't accepting it. PNC's system still wasn't working. On that, on that Friday, they made me an appointment to go to a PNC bank location and sit with a banker and do the same thing. Just like took 40 minutes every time to because you had, you had to fill out all the fields again because it didn't save the application. It got to the point where it asked for documents to be uploaded, get the error, show him the error, do it on his computer, show him the error, and then have them create a new login separate from my online banking login, which is what you were supposed to use to do the application, do it again and it worked. So there was some kind of glitch where my particular login wouldn't upload documents, but they were having so many issues with the uploads with people who didn't understand how to sign PDFs and things that they were like, they had all these troubleshooting processes. And I was like, I kept on telling them, it's not this PDF, it's not the digital signature because I can't upload any doc. I can't upload my ADP payroll reports. I can't upload an image of my driver's license, it's giving me the same error no matter what. It's not the PDF, but it's, you know, they're giving me instructions, so I'll follow them. But you know, that was literally like 20 hours of time trying to upload documents. So it was a pretty frustrating week. And then at the end of the day, I got the money from Radius Bank. So yeah. And actually did get it in the first round. So where do you stand now? You you have the money in hand. Yeah, so a week ago or a week ago yesterday, the funds were deposited in the account. And that starts the clock on an eight-week period when you can use them for forgivable purposes, uh, which are primarily payroll expenses, um, but also rents and utilities, as long as those costs are less than 25% of the amount that you ask to be forgiven. And so that was enough to bring back all of our full-time or full-time-ish employees uh, minus one who moved, who was planning already planning to move and move to Minnesota last week, and also to pay them sixty thousand dollars on an annual basis, which was a raise for everybody, and pay for health benefits. And so basically, you know, our loan, which is one hundred fifty-two thousand dollars, will cover that for eight weeks, and then we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I'm advising people to, you know. <laughs> Scroll that away as much as they can. We'll see what happens. 
So, I mean, in a sense, it worked like it was supposed to, ultimately, uh, even if it was a bunch of screw-ups on the way to get there. Yeah, I mean, I will say that in the end, I think the big flaw with the program is that if a business isn't operating at all, it does beg the question of whether it makes sense to, you know, basically funnel funds through this program to pay people versus just funneling it through unemployment and the stimulus that goes directly to people when it's not, if the business isn't operating, it's not going to help the business very much. So it doesn't really address that issue for businesses that are still operating, but are impacted. I think it works pretty well. And since, you know, it's a paycheck protection program, they did set up the requirements in such a way that you, you know, you can't cut half your staff or they, We'll only forgive half of the the money you spend. Right. So, you know, it incentivizes keeping everyone around. It incentivizes, you know, putting the funds into payroll costs. So, I mean, in that sense, I think they did a decent job designing it. Obviously, the implementation was tough, but you know, can't so- say it's shocking. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was it was a, it was a bumpy rollout. Um, so, what do you see? Going forward now, you're you're making a lot of pizza. Yeah, making a good amount of pizza. Um, there's been a lot going on. I mean, I've, there's also been a major uh, personal issue. My my father actually died oh, two sorry. weeks ago. Yeah, and that was also happening at the time that I was <laughs> applying for the loan. Right. Uh, speaking of fuck ups, yeah. he died of COVID in New York, and uh, it's yeah. Anyway potentially preventable he he had he had lymphoma but that's not something that necessarily kills you right so but it is something that if you have and you get COVID, is probably not good news yeah so that's been going on too uh so just in the last week kind of like getting back to looking at what we're doing um you know i think for the most part it'll be status quo i'm going to work more on on the wine sales in the next few weeks and just kind of organizing things and making more stuff available and pushing it a little more. So I've been able to sell a fair amount of wine just based on existing clientele and and friends who are interested in wine. Uh, And that's definitely an area that we can grow a little bit. And then also thinking about, I mean, just kind of finally taking the time to see what we want to do in the next two months, like what we can do to contribute to the community or make food for a hospital locally or something. And that's something I'm just going to look at this week, basically, because I've been focused elsewhere for the last few weeks. Yeah. Was this something when you went into the restaurant business, did you see yourself ever in this kind of position where you're, I mean, you're responsible for all these people's, well, you know, not just livelihoods, but sort of how they get through this. And you've got your own issues with your family and all this uh, stuff sort of happening at once. I mean, that's like major, you know, he- head of the family kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, you don't open a restaurant to have the easiest path, I guess. <laughs> um, and even in good times, there's a lot of responsibility if you employ 20 people or I guess, you know. Yeah, this obviously isn't a scenario that anyone could have envisioned, really. I guess maybe we should have, I don't know. I mean, it's just, that's a basic failing of human beings is we don't like to think about the really relatively low risk, very high hazard scenarios. And 
those are not things we like to we don't like to confront the hard stuff if we can avoid it so that's not something that we're habituated to think about a lot here we are and I don't know I mean versus being in a more sheltered industry and taking a salary to get on zoom conference calls from home I mean it's a different life but it still is pretty much in line with the, the life I chose to have so I can't complain Peter Klein is my neighbor in Chicago. We both live in Roscoe Village. But he's also a farmer near South Haven, Michigan. And when I run into him, it's usually been at Seedling Stand at the Green City Market. Who knows if that will be the case this year. But in the meantime, we spoke about how the year ahead looks for a farmer who's not sure if he's going to have buyers this season. Here we are in this weird time. What is, what's this weird time like for you? Did it affect what you were planning or was it already past that? No, it affected everything, I would say. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we do a lot of business with restaurants, so we don't know where our customers are. We do a lot of business at farmer's markets, so we don't know. We business selling smoothies, and I think that business is gone for the year. So we kind of lost all our customers, and... Um, at the same time, we lost a bunch of workers because people just aren't showing up. I don't know if they don't want to be here or can't get here or what's happening, but we won't have the same amount of workers either. So it's kind of a mess all the way around. But since, like you asked, we, we have a lot of trees and plants and bushes, so that stuff can't be stopped. That's coming back. But we do a few acres from seeds every year, so I cut back on that, and I was able to cancel one order of of new plants just to try to save some cash as well. So what were those that you were going to plant? So I cut way back on the melons, which we do a lot of melons every year because that's a big, heavy crop, and I'm not sure if the markets will support them this year. And we're going to plant a bunch of new specialty berries that I was able to cancel. Which are what, like the fraise de bois or something? Uh, there are raspberries, colored raspberries, but we probably wouldn't have had a crop this year anyway. It takes a couple of years. We probably would have started picking those next year, but we'll just wait a year and see what life is like. We grow a lot of stuff that just will keep coming back. Apples, peaches, pears, plums, nectarines, cherries, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, rhubarb, mulberries, zuniberries, medlar, pawpaws. (laughs) All that's just coming, you know? Um, Cherries are starting to blossom right now, and that's usually near the end of June, the crop. Um, some of the, just the stuff that comes up from the ground, things like sorrel and lovage is, is ready for harvest just about now. So things are coming. 
and there's no stopping it. So hopefully in the next, you know, before we get into some of our heavy stuff in, in June, we figure this out where we can sell it or who to sell it to. Yeah. Who of your regular customers is anybody? Are they just buying very small amounts? Do you think what's, what's going on? Well, we don't sell a lot in the winter cause we don't really do greenhouse business and whatnot, but we freeze a lot of stuff. We freeze a lot of apple cider and we freeze a lot of kind of big buckets of fruit because we use them for smoothies in the spring. Right. And so we don't sell a ton, but we sell kind of enough to, if you will, break even to pay the mortgage and some bills. So when spring comes, you know, we're kind of at that no big deal point. But all that stuff disappeared immediately. And so, you know, we're we're cash poor, too. So I just started reaching out to people who seem to be doing desserts or takeaway and said, hey, if you've any frozen fruit needs, if you could throw a dessert on that's got frozen fruit, you know, let me know and hopefully you can get some. So we've had some here and there. One of the beer guys, a bunch for a beer they're making. Alinea took a bunch for a couple of their their dishes. Um, Wherewithal has done it a couple times. They're able to jump in and help me out um, a couple times. But, you know, everyone else, is, a lot of people are still like, we just got, you know, refrigerators full of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So we're trying to get through it. Frontera is doing a, a takeout pie right now with it, with some tartaries, Frontera. So, you know, people have stepped in to help out, which is super great. And because uh, we don't really probably are not going to need a lot of this cider and fruit for smoothies for sure. I know there's Green City already has a little bit of like a delivery mar- delivery market going on through Mercado. How's that? How's that work for you? I think it's been nice. It's great exposure, but I don't really know yet. Products we have are kind of yeah, not the higher volume items. We've got frozen apple cider, which you know is not the season for. We we're making an apple cider vinegar with the. Uh, with the co-op hot sauce guys, and we've got some apple cider, like syrup, like a maple syrup made from apple cider. So we have very limited products. So we're selling a few, but it's not, you know, it's not the same as produce. But I think it's going well. It looks like they're selling out right away. Like people are logging in, and I've talked to people who can't even get in. But it's not like I don't think they're doing huge volume. I don't think they're they they're set up to do, you know, a peapot ish on an unlimited delivery. The peapod, right. wouldn't they have been killing it right now, man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They got out, got out of it at the wrong time. So we'll see what happens. And we're, we're like everyone else, looking for ways to pivot. I don't know if you saw Instagram, but we're doing a, you know, pre-order, pre-pay pickup. At, at, and Big Star is letting us use it a lot this Sunday. And oh, if that nice. goes well, we'll do that. We'll do that every Sunday if that goes well. Okay. Yeah, no, I didn't see that. I was about to ask you what, if you're looking at like, CSA type things or anything like that. Yeah, well, that's the first one we're doing with uh, a vegetable vendor, Iron Creek, and a flower vendor, Petals. We're all at Wicker Park together. Okay. And so, you know, the whole thing, like I said, pre pre order, pre pay on everyone's website, just swoop in, pick up, and go. Um, and if that works, we'll just keep doing that on Sundays as long as we can. Contact us, pick up. So we'll see. And then, yeah, I'm looking at CSA. You know, we've never really done a CSA box. So I'm talking to um, some people about maybe doing a fruit add-on to a vegetable box and making a little thing. And I think we'll definitely have to do that because that really seems like I'm not, I, I don't, I just can't imagine us doing like home delivery. I know some people are doing home delivery and stuff. That just seems just super rough from a cost and vehicle and staffing standpoint. Right. 
I mean, Jake's Country Meats delivered to me, but I ordered four hundred dollars stuff at one go. So yeah, I've met um, I've met Jeremy from Meadowhaven. He like goes to like a location and does pickup. Right, and that, I mean, that's just like you know, hey, that's a farmer's market right there. That's what that is. Um, you're just uh, ordering ahead of time. Well, yeah, I was thinking about that with you because I buy the same things. You know, I bet if you mapped my purchases on calendars year by year, I'm pretty much getting the same stuff the same weeks all through the summer. So right, yeah. You know, why not just make it a program? Yeah. I think we'll have to, right? So that's a, those are the three things we're working on. We're doing the Goosey, we got the Sunday pickup. And if that works out, I would definitely look for another day in another location within a big parking lot where you could pre order and swoop in. And uh, eventually we'll do CSA boxes. But we really can't do CSA until, you know, June, until we have stuff anyway. Right. So we got a little bit of time. Well, yeah. So tell me, I mean, how did it go for you when you first realized that this was going to happen? I don't know. I mean, in my brain, it was just a shit show, you know. It's holy cow. Uh, who knew? And I spent, you know, it took so long to figure out how this is going to go. And they didn't know about Green City Market. I mean, they were still getting mixed signals from what I understand, whether they were going to give them a permit, whether it would open up just that park, but hold on the whole thing. But, I mean, you, you knew it was going to be a mess from a restaurant standpoint right away. And you you say you're developing other kinds of products or other people are coming to you and saying, well, we can make a beer or whatever. I mean, is that what you think you're looking at toward the end of the summer? Is it just, just going to be a whole lot of processing? Maybe. Maybe that's the right way to go. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't mind that. I mean, we do a lot of that anyway. We do wholesale to the beer guys. And, but we may have to start looking for more of that, right? Just to save it or process it. We may, I mean, already we're starting to look and see if we can up the vinegar production and maybe just hold on to vinegar for a while. Or... You know, who knows? I mean, we can freeze some cider, but, man, there's going to be a lot of apples if we don't have apples to sell fresh. And, you know, there's always a possibility that you could sell to some of the big wholesalers, which I don't do because it's a really it's a really rough business. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's just it's, a commodity market at that point. Yeah. You'd get cents on the dollar, basically, compared to what you Correct. get otherwise. Yeah. And then you don't get it for a really long time. Oh, it's like freelance writing then. Well, yeah, tell me what, uh, I mean, you, since you live here in Roscoe Village, um, you know, even though it sounds like this connection sounds like, you know, one of us is in darkest mm -hmm. Africa or something, we're we're probably <laughs> 600 yards apart or something at this point. <laughs> um, what, uh, yeah, tell me what your, what's your life like? I mean, do you, do you go to your farm a couple of times a week? How does that work? Yeah, I reverse commute. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, three times a week, usually all summer, I reverse commute. I go up, we spend the, spend the day working and working with the guys and getting pet trucks packed. And then we bring a refrigerated truck down and would do markets and deliveries out of it the next day. And then when it's done with that, back up with it. So it's, it's kind of a reverse commute. And then, you know, if, if the schedule works out, I'll stay up there and, and work on the farm and stay on the farmhouse. But up and back. But when I freaked out and bought the orchard, we already kind of settled in here. My wife worked in the loop. My kids were in school. So there's no way to like kind of transfer everyone up there. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Tell me about that. How'd you get in this business anyway? Oh, man. I don't know. It's a weird, long story that many, many years ago, I was in the restaurant business. I don't know if you knew that. I, was I did working not. In marketing for, I was a marketing guy for a restaurant group. And even then, I was sort of obsessed with markets and with the local food scene and 
I would sort of be the first guy at the farmer's market in the morning to try to get the cool stuff and talk to the people. And, you know, I met guys like Lloyd Nichols and Dave from Kinnikinnick. And those were kind of like the guys who, you know, inspired me. And uh, at some point in some random market, my one of my favorite fruit vendors was retiring and selling the farm. And I thought, oh, man, that would be really an interesting thing to do and get me closer to the food, get me closer to the business, of course until I realized I lived in Chicago and I had no idea how to farm. Yeah. And then like six months later, they were still doing it. And I thought, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll just go look at it, go visit them and see. So I went up there and visited them and saw this unbelievable, gorgeous 80 acre property planted with trees and old farmhouses and, you know, 150 year old history and super amazing and gorgeous and talked to them about their life. And they're like, you're an idiot. And my wife said, you're an idiot. And I said, yeah, that's probably true. So then I let it go. And then six months later, I was like, you know, maybe I'll just write a business plan and see if there's a way to make this work. So I wrote a business plan, tried to figure it out. Looked like there was no way to make money on it. And then I said, boy, I'm really an idiot. And then I quit my job and bought a farm. (laughs) So there you go, man. It was in there somewhere. I couldn't get rid of it. Well, I mean... I've I've certainly seen that the guys, you know, like Dave from Connecticut, who, you know, have an idea of selling a premium product, you know, that they managed yeah. to make that work. I mean, one of the things that amazed me at Connecticut was that, you know, he's, he's famous for growing arugula. And it's not even like he grows that much. There's a lot of land there that he could be putting arugula on. Um, but he, I guess he knows how much market there is for, you know, name brand arugula, basically. Is that kind of how it's worked out for you? Yeah, I suppose, you know, I mean, you know, the only two guys I visited, but even before I bought it, I did visit Lloyd and I did visit Dave. I mean, I'm thinking of a premium product too, but a lot of the stuff was, was planted. It was already there. And the life of a fruit farmer is so different because, you know, four years is the short life cycle. So I'm like, man, wouldn't it be great to try this particular type of apple? And so you got to buy that apple and you got to wait four years to taste it, and then six years before you have production. Yeah. So you're doing a lot of crazy stuff in terms of thinking and planning and praying. So, you know, when I first started this, the, the connections with the restaurants was, was kind of minor amongst the local food scene. It wasn't really a big thing. And so, you know, having some restaurant connections and those some people sort of help mitigate some of that where I can plant some and say, okay, now my, my medlar crop is coming. Who's going to try these medlars? Yeah. And no one's ever heard of a medlar. Yeah, no. Medlar. Tell me about that because I know Mike Sula wrote a piece about it, but I, I kind of don't know what they are. Oh, yeah, that's just like little tiny fruit. I, don't, I can't even figure out where it's originally from. I believe it's possibly originally like a Japanese fruit. And it's about the size of, I don't know, a big grape. And it's brown and not very pretty and got a thick skin. And kind of after frost, you pick it or it falls and you wait until the, the technical term is black, B-L-E-T-T, but it really rots, right? And when it gets mushy, then you can kind of squeeze out this beautiful, delicious, custardy, earthy, custardy pulp. But it tastes great and it cooks great, but it's this really super 
odd looking and late, late fruit. So we just take a flyer. We, we put a bunch of those trees, we put six or eight of those trees in because they're supposed to get huge. And we've got to take a flyer. Well, th- I think that's one of the things that I really came to realize, you know, as I met some farmers like Dave, like Oriana and so on, is the fruits you see in the supermarket are the ones that are sort of supermarket friendly. They're yeah. easy, they're easy to pick. They're easy to transport. All that stuff, and the ones like pawpaws that you kind of have to wait for them to drop on their own, and then get yeah. them before some animal does. And they have a weird. Ch- I mean, a pawpaw is like you know a a potato with banana cream pudding inside it basically oh and it also has like buckshot inside it you know it's got these seeds so and that's just not it's not an easy thing to explain to people how to eat that right i put and i have a i now have a 30 tree power a certain amount it has to be education for you saying what the hell can you do with this yeah but you know from my my personal standpoint that's the beauty of this thing for me that's what that's what gets me going. I'm not interested in growing 10 million honey crisps for, you know, right. for commodity. To me, it's like seeing all these interesting fruits, tasting and using them, and then working with guys who are guys like Abe at Fat Rice or, you know, John Fields at Smith now is one of the, you know, he'll, he loves working with anything that's super weird and interesting. Right. But that's the beauty of it, you know, and taking this stuff home and learning and trying. That's, that's the creative aspect and the fun aspect for me. So, I mean, we put in a row of mulberry trees a couple of years ago. We have this area in the way back corner of the farm that's like kind of whole stand of mulberry trees in. Because I know people sometimes have asked me to forge them or look for them, and it's away from everything else. And you know, we got our first decent crop last year, and it was super cool. They were actually really delicious, and people were super jazzed. I mean, right? Who's, who's stupid enough to farm mulberry trees? Well, wait a minute. You could just forage those in Roscoe Village. I know. I know some spots where the the sidewalk turns to jam every summer, basically. That's what I said. Who's stupid enough to farm them when you can go grab them? So that's the beauty of the whole thing to me. That's what's fun. That's, you know, that's maybe some inspiration from Dave, too, I suppose, you know. In what way? Just in terms of doing some really interesting things, because just because they're creative and fun and interesting. So chefs are pretty good about taking these and sometimes you have to work pretty hard to find somebody. Well, cause then they've got to put it on a menu and it says medlar and people are like, uh, what? I think I'll order chocolate. Yeah. It's also, uh, it's also not uh, the common restaurant or there's not a ton of them that can change menus that quick that you can go to and say, I've got, you know, limited on these and take them and they could have a dish for two weeks and then be done with, you know, a lot of restaurants, even, even really creative restaurants have to have them can't do menu changes that quick or that often. Yeah. And we can move some of that at markets too. If I, you know, if I had a big pile of pawpaws at a market, when people shoppers come looking, people who come to markets are excited about that. And, you know, they would like to talk to you about it and understand it and see it and smell it and taste it. So that's going to be tough for us, too. If, if markets are only pre-order and pickup, you're going to use a lot of that interaction, too. 
Yeah, no, that's something I, I was really kind of sad when I heard that because, I mean, that's the whole point of the market. If I'm just going to, I mean, if I just want stuff, I can order stuff from local foods or whoever. Right. Part of the point is discovery. It's walking around and looking at things, you know, tasting blueberries from a few different places and seeing who's are, you know, who's are like what and all that stuff. I mean, that whole interactive part of it sounds like it's going to be gone. And I'm not sure, I mean, that might be okay for farmers because it's, I'm sure you do a lot of hand selling for a lot of, for a relatively little return sometimes. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be good for me. I mean, not the way I grow and the things I grow. I need people to see them and smell them and taste them. And not good for me, the pre-order, the pre-pickup only. Well, yeah, I always think of like when melons are all in and you'll have like six or eight different kinds in bins and you'll have a little melon baller there and samples that people can taste. I mean, I absolutely do that. I mean, I'm scraping whatever I can get to have a little taste, you know, because usually people have gone through the good parts by the time I get to it. But, uh, but, you know, even so, and I'll pick like two or three. I mean, I remember like the first time I found those butterscotch melons and things like that. Cantaloupe or melon has tasted exactly one way for your whole life, and then suddenly it tastes like something else, mm-hmm. and it has varieties. It tastes like two yeah. or three different things that you come home mm-hmm. with. I mean, that's that's great. Yeah, not this year. Not this year, exactly. Yeah. You don't want to yeah. go door-to-door in Roscoe Village? Just t- taste Oh, them. man. I sure, <laughs> I sure don't. <laughs> I know, you made, you've made jam before, haven't you? We did jam for a few years. Yeah, we did jam for a few years. Uh, but you know that's a that's a tough business. You need a commercial kitchen that also has to plan for jam. Yeah. So I had someone who had that and could make them, and then they're out of they don't do that anymore. So I've never really quite found anyone else. But jam is one of those tough products that sounds good on paper, but you know everyone's got four jams in the refrigerator, and they they. They use them for a few years. <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. it's not like, you know, you're selling jam to someone every week. It's not a, a perishable. So it's it's good to use up some fruit. And I would definitely actually will look at that and see if I can figure that out again. But I don't think it's maybe it's a one year solve, but it's not like a really long term thing for all well, just for me personally, how we operate, you know, because just people don't really use it up that quick. Yeah, no, I, I understand that completely. Having just cleaned out some of my cabinets and just like, oh, that's when we went to South Carolina in 2004. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That sort of thing. What was I thinking yeah. when I decided I wanted corn cob jelly? I have no idea. That sounded good to me. Was it really corn cob jelly? That's what it says. And yeah, it kind of oh tastes God. like it tastes like popcorn or something. Um, oh, that's great. You know, who knows? I mean, I guess that's people like that somewhere, but it's what you do with all that's your great. Uh, your corn cobs, I guess, is boil the last little bits of starch out of them or whatever. I don't know. You know, I love it's, that. it's it's, it's kind of cool, but it's definitely that sort of uh, you know, depression era, you know, there's nothing left to eat but the corn cobs, son. You know, sort of <laughs> You know, for me, it's always it's always really thinking through some kind of apple cider thing. Yeah. Because um, we have, you know, we grow the apples. We have 18 acres of apples. We have our own cider mill. So that's why things like the apple cider vinegar and the, have you tried the syrup? We make like, we take our apple cider to the guy who owns the um, maple, the, the maple syrup factory down the road. I say it's a factory, but it's kind of super old timey, wood fired, 
So it's kind of spectacular. I think it's kind of like sweet, but a little apple and a little kind of caramely because it starts out at a higher sugar level. But so if I can think of more sort of apple cider products, that that's the crop that I need the help with. I, I'm, worried, I'm most worried about, you know, but everything is just going to be just different. I mean, you're just going to have to keep testing things, I think, and seeing what sticks and keep pushing and keep trying and hoping. Thanks for listening to Food Eater Radio is all dressed up and has no place to go. And thanks to my guests, Matt Sussman and Peter Klein. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Please subscribe to Food Eater Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And consider leaving a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover it too. Thanks. Thanks.